You are listening to The Crisis Beat with Dr. Mark Crowther and Brady Wood. Hey now, welcome to The Crisis Beat, episode 10. It's August 6th, 2023. My name is Brady Wood and I'm a business owner and public relations professional. And I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Mark Crowther, who in his other life is chair of medicine at McMaster University. And welcome back to the program. Uh, Mark, uh, we're starting off, uh, we've been just talking about your trip to Reykjavik, Iceland, and uh, some volcano and earthquake uh, um, activity while you were there. I didn't know if you wanted to uh, tell the viewers a little bit about what you uh, had experienced. Yeah, thanks, Brady. So first of all, hi, everybody. Uh, Sorry, we've taken a long break. Life is busy at the moment, so we've been off for a while. But thanks for listening to those of you who do. Turns out we've got some people who actually have listened to every single episode, which we were surprised at. Uh, So thank you. The um, Yeah, I was away for two weeks. Uh, We did an environment-destroying, unfortunately, trip to Iceland uh, and then did a cruise around Iceland, um, beautiful country. Uh, highly recommend people go. I would go in the shoulders season. Uh, I think July and August is pretty doggone busy. Take a jacket, it's cold. Um, but uh, stuff you'll see there you've never seen before. We had a earthquake that was pretty impressive for those who haven't experienced a real earthquake. Um, wakes you up for sure. Uh, and <clears throat> it was centered only 10 kilometers away from the hotel. So we got a pretty good shake out of it. And then shortly thereafter, a volcano erupted, which the Icelandic government, I think, is scheduled to erupt every summer to increase tourist traffic. Um, pretty impressive, although we couldn't see it because it's a fair hike to get to see it. But just even from the observation deck of one of the museums, you could actually see where it was on the horizon. So it's quite neat, quite close to Reykjavik in the airport. Anyway, highly recommend a vacation there if anybody's interested in going somewhere to see different stuff. Although uh, there's no point in going there if you want to get a Disneyland experience because um, the country only has 370,000 people. So, uh, you know, it's pretty pretty it's for people who want to explore uh but not somebody who wants to have themselves served hand and foot uh, as you might get if you're going to a resort somewhere awesome and mark we talked a little bit about the comms you got on the island about the about the activity the volcanic activity i don't know if that like to me it was interesting that you got um such ready alerts yeah it was quite interesting actually that the you know talk about effective communications when i turn on my phone after landing i got a text warning in english i don't know how it knew that um because the country predominantly speaks icelandic which has little to do with english in the last 1500 years or a thousand years um and just warning that there was likely volcanic activity and and the international press around this volcano was much more spectacular than the national press in, in Iceland having a volcano erupt is kind of like having a light rain shower on a Tuesday afternoon um, <laughs> because they have a heck of a lot of volcanoes that are up there uh, and and so really you know other than um, people going down there and doing a 20 kilometer hike across extraordinarily difficult terrain to see it it was a non it wasn't even a news item like it did not appear in the news in Iceland whereas it was appearing in the news everywhere else and you, some people remember in 2010, there was a volcano that erupted that injected a lot of ash into the higher atmosphere, which screwed up plane travel for North America, uh, Europe for a long time. Um, this is a completely different kind of volcano, so there was no risk of that happening. The only real risk was if it had flowed in the other direction, it might have cut off the highway to the airport, but it's flowing towards the south. Anyway, beautiful country, very well organized, very tidy, lowest crime rate in the world. Um, very impressive quite sure you could drop your wallet on the street and with a high degree of likelihood it would reappear the next day in your hotel room the um we were walking along the road and there was a piece of garbage and a guy in a truck came along stopped his truck got out and picked up the individual piece of garbage got back into his truck and headed off (laughs) 
It was quite impressive, actually. <laughs> Excellent. Sounds, <laughs> sounds idyllic and a bit uh, surreal with the sort of Mordor-like uh, ability for a <laughs> volcano to just go off here and there. Yeah, well, I could anywhere. I think that any. You you would um, you wouldn't want to be building a Notre Dame cathedral in Iceland because at any moment a volcano could crop up underneath it. Yeah, that would not be ideal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the second thing. We have a couple of breaking news items here. Um, I was going to just touch on this whole. We're going to talk later about the Bud Light thing, uh, but but we were uh, there's there's these little um, conflag conflagrations, whatever that word is, in the. Um, uh, Person, not personality, the the wokeism war, I would call it, are bursting out everywhere all the time. This week, there was one about incandescent light bulbs, and I think the U.S. government has banned incandescent light bulbs. And of course, this is causing a group of people to get all up in arms because they turn out to have a deep religious affiliation to incandescent light bulbs for some reason. Canada, I think, banned them years ago, and there was a little bit of a stink back then. But everybody's gotten used to the fact that you get better quality light that's way cheaper out of other forms of light bulbs. Um, but interesting how that has translated again into the right-left divide in the United States, whereas in most places in the world, it's a complete, total, 100% non-issue. And how these these changes, which are probably unremarkable, suddenly become touch points in this culture war that's going on. And yeah, and so Mark, it's uh, that that's it. It's about it's about tribalism. So what what is the group? Uh, do you know what the group that's seizing on them? What is their point? Is it just the the, the like a, they do not want the change related to the, the light bulbs? Yeah, I think it's the, the 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 government is doing something to me again, and it doesn't really matter what the government. The government were to issue an instruction telling people to stop sawing off their left arms. People would go out with saws and saw off their left arms just to show that they were allowed to do it, I suspect. I don't think there's much logic in this. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. And is there any government communications on this, or they're just saying this is happening and we've explained ourselves? Right, well, there's a, there's a general trend around the world, right, to eliminate incandescent light bulbs because they're extraordinarily inefficient and um, governments looking to try to reduce electricity consumption and reduce carbon generation have moved rapidly to get rid of incandescent light bulbs. They are also very old school insofar as like the manufacturing capabilities have been reduced. And uh, the, again, I think in the same way that Certain countries in the world have been unable to enter, eliminate the lowest denomination coin because people have a weird affiliation to the penny. Uh, this is another manifestation of that. It has very little to do with logic. I don't know that there's any benefit to having an incandescent light bulb in your house compared to having a different kind of light bulb. That's fair. That's fair. And then, Mark, we also we also had a bit of a, um, a chuckle and wide eyes about this issue with, uh, I guess it's called Shane, which is S-H-E-I-N, the fast fashion clothing manufacturer. So uh, we missed this one on the last episode, but in, in June, they had uh, invited influencers to come to China to explore the quality of their factories. And it, it was obviously a, a, a large sort of a dissimulation exercise wherein um, they were shown kind of idyllic circumstances, these influencers and allowed to um, interview select um, select individuals in the in the company, and as it turned out, um, uh, you know this all this all looked like it was a large uh, PR PR stunt that involved uh, the government, and uh, many of the influencers have taken a lot of flack uh, flack for this. So we'll we'll circulate the uh, the New York Times article with our um, with our summary of this episode, but that was also one where 
you see the peril again for an influencer in their affiliation with certain brands and their behavior and certainly would have an impact on 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 revenue so uh interesting case but also um funny to see uh, you know well meaning probably americans used as again the what the communists used to call the useful idiot like bring them in and have them effectively think they're doing one thing but achieving something else in this case which is to legitimize um, what might be very exploitive uh, manufacturing practices. Yeah, it'd be worth doing a whole, I don't really understand the influencer subculture at all. Um, uh, but Brady, I know that you've done some work with influencers and have helped people to become very successful in that domain. So it's probably worth actually doing a whole episode just talking about that culture and how it works. Because for many of us, it does appear to be completely unlinked from reality in an odd kind of way, insofar as these people are paid large amounts of money to do something which I think is pretty intangible, which is to try to change people's opinion. But clearly, they're very good at changing people's opinion because it's become very, very expensive investment for brands to buy uh, influencers. Yeah, I think they all, they each, those that with large audiences, they effectively have, they're able to narrow cast in some cases to very large audiences. And that that is actually quite valuable because it also has a bit of greater legitimacy when they in- endorse something when they're known and they have trust with their public. So you can see where that uh, has a great impact on the bottom line when someone that you like to watch or get advice from says, hey, by the way, you should use this paint or you should use this beauty product or you should buy this car. Um, it just it just resonates differently in the same way almost that earned media resonates differently. So if a brand gets coverage by the by a, a newspaper or by the uh, news outlet that has greater legitimacy and is probably worth more money to the brand than an ad that they paid for so similar effect of the influencer and and maybe more powerful because of that narrow casting and almost feeling of direct relationship that people have with these people yeah i'm just looking here at a interesting there's a social media channel called twitch which probably the large majority of people have never even heard of which i know a bit about because of my video game stuff and uh and and they're talking about the 10 of the richest twitch streamers so the one who they this website ranks as being top um has 18 and a half million followers so you can see the value if you want to sell your type of paint as you just said <laughs> getting that person to mention it is likely to lead to a sudden boost in paint sales for your product because it is such a targeted audience right yeah. you develop this this weird relationship with them absolutely and then i guess on the the side of the influencer well you mentioned paint there's a a young guy um from toronto um callum um who does these uh, spin paintings i'll just uh let me just see who i can callan callan Schaub. he's a, a guy who does these large canvases with paint but then he's attracted a following and now he is explicitly mentioning what paint he uses and has discount codes and things like that so even though not germane to how he primarily makes money it's also when you start to gain an audience um it seems quite logical that if you have that opportunity, um, take it. I grew, I grew up, I don't know about you, Mark, but I grew up in the, like in the nineties dating myself a bit here. And it was like the time of grunge rock and stuff. And like being a sellout at some point was seen as like the, the highest insult, you know, a sellout would be someone who, who did collaborate with corporate interests. And it, it just strikes me how, how much the pendulum has swung for practical reasons. I mean, ultimately in a capitalist society, it makes, it makes more sense to accept money than not on some kind of strange 
um, moral ground in, um, or some sort of feeling that it's undignified to not accept the money or to accept money from corporate interests. But uh, yeah, that that is a wild phenomenon to swing from it being completely uncool to be a sellout to, you know, even the even the most respected bands doing collaborations with other uh, corporate interests. Really strange. Totally agree. Quite weird, but uh, obviously a lot of money to be made. <clears throat> if you're a 22-year-old, otherwise unemployable person who suddenly has 18 and a half million followers on Twitch, who blames them for making as much money as they possibly can? <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. All right, let's move on to our standing item of uh, the uh, uh, the privacy tour um, and our, <laughs> our good friends, uh, Harry Windsor and Meghan Markle. I, I, swear, I swear someone's going to knock on our door and, and and say that we're covertly a Prince Harry and Meghan Markle podcast, even though that's not the intent. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they've just given us a lot of fodder for communication. And it does it does knit together the issue very interestingly about how institutions manage their reputation by way of the royal family, how these folks that are very influencer-like and have these ambitions the kind of um, path that they're weaving and what that looks like. Uh, yeah, few, there's a lot of dimensions here. But uh, what was up uh, this week, Mark? Well, just a couple of different things. So first of all, there was a an unfounded rumor about the fact that their relationship is not great. That's probably not for us to hypothesize about. That's a private matter between them. Uh, but continuing, uh, Harry, uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, last six weeks or so, has done a couple of interviews where he's been talking again about how difficult it is to be in the public eye. And again, continues to strike kind of a weird dissonant chord in my head that this guy who's complaining about the trauma of being the public eye is in the public eye complaining about the trauma of being there. Um, it's quite weird. And I think at a higher level, as you just said, 10 years from now, when people look back at this, they're going to realize that the uh, the royal family stuck to its 300, 500, 800 year old tradition of just taking completely the high road on the communication issues. And they'll come through this with little or no reputational damage. And and who knows what, what the two protagonists in this case will, what situation they'll be in in 10 years. But I can guarantee you there'll be a lot more electrons de-energized or ink spilled over their half of the bargain um, whereas the royal family will look and sound probably identical to the way it does now in a decade yeah i do think they've kind of and and you know maybe we'll, we'll see but it feels like maybe we're reaching our end with with them in the sense that now it's uh they seem to be on the kind of page six gossip page more than anything and the the vibe is relatively negative i would say like we found something in the new yorker in the shouts and murmurs section um where I, I, this was a legitimate article where uh, talking about um harry talking about possible shows and he was going to interview people about their childhood trauma and he had proposed vladimir putin mark zuckerberg donald trump and pope francis and so then the new yorkers kind of poking fun at it and made a, a simulated interview between harry and putin and it's actually very quite fun really quite funny so we'll we'll share that as well but it does seem like they have um I don't know. I don't know if they fatally wounded their brand, but they're definitely hobbled. And I think this might be a, you know, they're like a Tory spelling now. We're going to be hearing about them in the tabloids till the end of time. But whether they'll ever accomplish anything again will be interesting to watch. Yeah. You know, they're extraordinarily rich people who live in Southern California where there's a lot of extraordinarily rich people. They should just, in my opinion, pull their head back into their shell and retreat back into the rich Southern California lifestyle. They'll disappear in there and no one will be the wiser for it. That's what they should be doing. I can imagine they must have enough cash to 
coast for the rest of their lives without any issues. So that would be my recommendation to them. I think that's the best brand rectification plan that they could possibly have, to be quite honest. Yes, agreed. Totally. Totally. Uh, <clears throat> next thing is um, we had talked before about Nicholas Sturgeon um, and the fact that there had been uh, swirling rumors of financial malfeasance um, initially involving her husband and then a motorhome and then her. Uh, and the follow on to that is just really quickly um, uh, an article that is was in Politico, but also other discussions on the BBC and elsewhere about um, the kind of destruction of the Scottish National Party and the potential for them to lose an enormous number of seats. Um, and and partly just because of a resurgence of the Labour Party, which is associated with the brand destruction of the Conservatives as well, but but also contributed to um, by a loss of loss of trust in the SNP as a result of this financial issue, which of course hasn't been tested or proven in court. We don't really know what happened, but certainly when the leader of the party resigns suddenly, and then several months later, there's you know is is has a visit to the police because of issues involving parties financial things it really does lead people to question the reliability of their political leaders which then can have these downstream consequences which could be that labor has a resurgence in scotland which would then actually potentially change the political dynamic for the entire country because who knows what would happen in, in England between the Conservative and Labour. But if the SNP loses a bunch of seats, Labour picks them up, then you could easily have, you know, that could be the cause of a Labour majority government, which would be interesting. It's not just the Keir Stalmer, um, Richie Sunak issue in terms of leadership. It becomes more about also a negative effect of the SNP's destruction. Right, right. So again, um, law, law of unintended consequences, that seems to be the... Our, our phrase of the day in terms of public relations and managing um, these issues is the fact that, you know, X happens and three months later you see A, B, and C, none of which appear to be directly related, but in fact, none of A, B, or C would have happened unless X had happened. Yeah, I, I think that characterizes many of the cases we're looking at today, including our big one on on, on Bud Light. But I would, uh, I'll go back to the Nicholas Sturgeon too. I mean, for the viewer's reminder, the the, it, it really did feel like the fraud that was committed, the potential fraudulent activity that was committed here was such low stakes as well. But any any more clarity on that, Mark? And since um... no, there's been there's been really nothing that I've seen in the news media. But again, it's you know it's to be quite honest, it's less than a million pounds, which is small potatoes considering now what we're starting to see is the shakeout and you know Scottish independence vote has gone off the table. It looks like again. Uh, as a result of this, it's it really has had an enormous impact. And you really wonder, like I'm sure that Nicola Sturgeon, as many uh, retired leaders have, has an opportunity to do the $20,000 a night talk um, and make enormous amounts of money this, the femtosecond they retire. I would say that if you're that if I could give a piece of advice to somebody who's that prominent, it's keep your hand out of the till till after you retire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's for sure. Or, or just in general. <laughs> yeah, but once you retire, you know, the till is yours for the rifling because uh, you're you're not going to be subject to the kind of review as long as you do it legally. <laughs> yes, yes, legally is the key. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the to the big one. So, Brady, I think you're going to do the overview on this, and we're going to be very careful to not um, uh, put any value judgments into this discussion. All we're going to talk about here is just kind of the from the crisis management perspective, what's happened. 
Yes, absolutely, Mark. So uh, we're talking today about uh, Bud Light and its affiliation with uh, Dylan Mulvaney, the uh, the influencer, and um, how that's affected the brand. So Bud Light's uh, sales have slumped, I think, something close to 30% now. So we're going to dig in on that. Uh, this was, These were events that kind of started in uh, in April of, of this year. And uh, just a, a bit of a recap. So um, Dylan uh, Mulvaney is a, an influencer and a Broadway performer, and she had been um, in the Book of Mormon and some other um, high profile sort of New York uh, theater, had a large following on social media and started to show her transition to womanhood. So a transgender woman um, went through that transition very publicly and uh, documented um, the changes in her life and the impact and uh, and did, uh, you know, um, um, did sort of uh, already she'd already courted controversy with conservatives uh, in, in some ways. So I think that, um, you know, she became a favorite of Marjorie Taylor Greene to kind of have some try to have some public friction with. So very much someone actually. Um, involved in some of these U.S. culture wars as well, where we would say there's some very right-leaning folks that um, are very against uh, transgenderism um, uh, being uh, popularized or celebrated. And then on the other side, there are folks who believe that this is a, strictly a matter of of justice and human expression, and uh, it contains a, a, a very deep sense of a human rights issue that is important. And so those two forces, so like the abortion debate and others, there's this uh, like explosive kind of friction there. And um, so Bud Light, uh, Bud Light, I would say in my in my opinion, this was sort of, it, well, I think we'll talk about the calculations that they ran, but this to me just seems like it might have been some naive bandwagoning around LGBTQI um, brand affiliations. So they uh, they basically had a contest. I don't recall what the contest was about, but effectively there were some pride pride like uh, gay pride or LGBTQI pride based products that Bud Light was going to put out in celebration of Pride Month or something like that. Um, and Dylan Mulvaney became uh, the face of that, or was at least affiliated with the brand through that. Did some posting. And uh, of course, this attracted uh, this attracted uh, angry conservative backlash. So, um, and, and and this is the part where I think it's predictable based on Dylan Mulvaney had already been involved in kind of negative, had attracted negative conservative ba backlash. So I think that part was was uh, predictable. And then the other thing that I I can't quite get over is why. Why Bud Light didn't know itself better in the sense of who its its core constituency was, or did they not care and thought this was an issue of justice that they should um, do this promotion? But anyway, so what what ended up happening was that um, um, there was uh, a lot of um, um, a lot of chatter online, a lot of negative uh, conservative news about it. And then it got really strange when uh, Kid Rock um, used a he he did a post and we'll we'll include this in one of the articles. But um, Kid Rock did a, a a social media post. So Kid Rock is like this country rocker, edgy, very right wing President Trump supporting guy, and he's in a Make America Great Again hat, and he takes an AR fifteen and uh, machine guns a large stack of Bud Light products. And then turns to the camera and says, F Anheuser-Busch and F uh, Bud Light and some other things. 
And then that attracted a, a new kind of Twitter storm because, uh, you know, an AR-15 has been used in a lot of mass shootings. So then you had left and right and gun issues. And anyway, Bud, Bud Light, I would say, was in the middle of something that did not uh, probably look very good on the brand in general. Um, and then strangely, their their response in April, um, April 14th, the CEO put something out. Mark, maybe I'll stop there. Any, anything I've missed so far? Or are you OK? I keep going. Well, I think, again, uh, we're 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 avoiding any value judgments built into this and trying to just keep ourselves focused on the content. But it is very interesting to me how probably, as you said, you know, some junior level advertising person who grew up in the 2020s thought, oh, this looks like a great way of building the brand and probably highlighting the need for um, careful oversight of important brand-related decisions uh, launched this thing, maybe with or maybe without the permission of the higher-ups in the organization. But clearly, you know, I think if you were to sit back uh, with a beer in your hand, obviously not a Bud Light, because many of us would question us. Many of us would question whether that actually is a beer. Um, uh, and <laughs> and and look at this marketing decision. Uh, like if there was ever a place where you could predict that a firestorm would erupt, um, I suspect that this is it. It really does strike me as being very interesting marketing decision. I guess Bud Light has got an awful lot of mention in the media over the last six months, way more than it would get otherwise, but probably not in the way that the company would like. No, and we'll talk about the money um, side of this because the impact has been has been strictly negative on their bottom line uh, by the looks of it. Um, but there is a part of me that wonders if they thought that maybe like in a kind of almost what we've seen as we've discussed President Trump in the past, a kind of all news is good news situation on the part of their marketing team, knowing that this would attract a controversy, but thinking that this might go more positively somehow. But um so the CEO, uh, we're here in in part to discuss crisis communications, and so I think a really interesting data point is what what communication did Bud Light put out in the midst of all of this? And so the CEO did a post on all social media, and it was very it was actually very strange. I, I think it's worth reading. So the post reads. Uh, um, our responsibility to America. As the CEO of a company founded in America's heartland more than 165 years ago, I'm responsible for ensuring every consumer feels proud of the beard we brew. We're honored to be part of the fabric of this country. It goes on to say thousands of partners, millions of fans. I'm going to paraphrase here because it's quite long. We never intended to be part of the discussion that divides people. We are in the business of bringing people together over a beer. My time serving this country taught me the importance of account accountability and the values upon which America was founded, freedom, hard work, and respect for one another. CEO of Anheuser-Busch, I'm focused on building and protecting our remarkable history and heritage. Uh, he goes on to say he cares about the country and listening and learning from customers. And then it ends, moving forward, I will continue to work tirelessly to bring great beers to consumers across our nation. So there's actually one line in here that addresses the controversy, which is we never intended to be part of a discussion that divides people. Um, it doesn't mention Dylan Mulvaney. It doesn't mention whether they they feel they've done anything wrong. And, and it certainly doesn't mention any kind of move move forward statement. So I think this person um, felt obligated to communicate something, um, maybe something a bit tepid, but something that might calm waters a bit and just reassert where they are at as a company. But um, I don't know. What do you think of this statement, Mark? Do you? It, it uh, reminds me. 
way back when we did one on the airline meltdown around Christmas of last year and Southwest's CEO came out with a statement that sounded like it was written by chat GPT, which is what that sounds like to me, right? It sounds like it's written by, you know, uh, I, I, I've become a big believer in chat GPT. I use it, I'll use it later today for something I'm sure, but you know, it's, please, you say to chat GPT, please write a somewhat apologetic <laughs> press release with respect to X controversy, highlighting the fact that we've been an American company for 150 years and we have been part of the American cultural fabric since then, and uh, please limit it to 300 words. And chat GPT would come up, and it would look great. It would look it would look a lot like that, actually, to be quite honest. Yes. So, you know, I think <laughs> it is very, very interesting to me that, yeah, it doesn't really say anything at all, does it, really? Then again, the Southwest one, you may remember, Southwest obviously didn't suffer any brand damage, as we predicted that it wouldn't. But um, but but the Southwest one initially, the, the CEO, to paraphrase, kind of said to everybody, you know, welcome to reality. Whereas what he should have been saying is we will make this right. And here's the number you call. And I know you've lost your luggage, but we'll do our best to find it for you. But didn't do that. Yeah. And, and, and in this case, yes, you're right. It's like, it's sort of what was this meant to achieve? It's it's completely unclear. And did it achieve anything? It doesn't appear to have because it, it seems like the right wing uproar continued. And then also, and very much equally worth noting, the LGBTQ plus community as well, uh, we're really displeased about how Bud Light responded in terms of not um, protecting the influencer who obviously was subject to a lot of cruelty online and a lot of, uh, you know, even just people using machine guns on Bud Light and things. It's all quite scary imagery in my mind, too. So I have a great deal of empathy for that, uh, for anyone who would be kind of faced with that kind of um, vitriol. So interestingly, you've got uh, Bud Light in the center of the controversy and both sides of the culture war is quite upset with them. Um, very interesting. And that, you yeah. know, obviously all of the politicians were were getting in, involved. Um, you know, I think it was like Ted Cruz was going to have an investigation through the Senate or something, some, like some really strange things uh, happened. And then, uh, and then I think Bud Light further kind of did not distinguish itself by, um, by basically not supporting the influencer and her coming out and saying that. So Dylan Mulvaney basically said she never heard from Bud Light again, and they didn't offer her any support during all of this controversy. Um, and it looks like now they've just sort of um, resumed some regular branding and and sponsorship of All Star Games and um, and kind of they've continued hawking their beer. I suspect with much greater oversight <laughs> and more focus groups. The um, <clears throat> the issue that we want to talk a bit about the financial impact, just to yes. reflect the fact that, that these decisions do have major financial impact. So um, The Economist uh, ran what I found was a really good article looking at the impact of this, not so much on Bud Light, but on the competitor beer, which is now the number one beer in the United States. Uh, and and highlighting the fact that that transition from Bud Light to this new beer, which is Modelo, um, was not just because of a diminution in Bud Light sales, but it was also because Modelo has been the subject of some really good marketing by its manufacturer. Um, it's a much more expensive beer. And also uh, yeah, that beer um, being uh, of Mexican genetic heritage appeals to a different segment of the population, which is growing very rapidly in the United States. And so taking advantage of not just um, the the uh, trials and tribulations of Bud Light, but also building on demographic shifts in the United States uh, and selling a beer that is a what they call a premium beer 
which means that the markup or the profit margin is much higher on that beer. So really very interesting. Um, and I think contrasting what looks a little bit like a flopping uh, fish on the shore, uh, PR reaction to this by Bud Light contrasted with an extraordinarily, I think, effective um, uh, marketing move on behalf of the manufacturer of Modelo without obviously <laughs> um, uh, you know, saying anything public about Bud Light or taking either side uh, or the middle ground in the in the discussion. They really focused on their core business, which, to be quite honest, is selling beer. And it uh, looks like they're doing it quite well. Yeah, I'll just note um, we have an article here that says so at the, in the month ending July 15th, Bud Light's U.S. sales were down 26.5 percent. So they lost a quarter of their their more, more than a quarter of their sales, almost thirty percent, and Modelo's were up thirteen point five percent. And at that time, um, Bud Light's share of the U.S. beer market uh, had fallen to six point eight percent, while Modelo had ascended to an eight point seven percent share. So fairly significant uh, swings in terms of the the fortunes of the company for sure. Yeah, and it's interesting that the the manufacturer. So you heard Anheuser Busch with Bud Light, um, and and here this this company called Constellation, which before it acquired Modelo was relatively small, has now become a behemoth um, in part because of that acquisition. So interesting. Again, just speaking to the issue of the fact that well done marketing can transform a consumer landscape. And then, yes, I do see here, by the way, so the rev the total revenue damage is that um, this is in a CNN business article, but their revenue um, had fallen 395 million in North America from the year before. So fairly significant impact. Yeah, for sure. And again, probably comes out of a series of decisions made on a Tuesday afternoon in a Zoom call in some subsidiary part of this enormous enterprise that has led to this huge fallout. Well, this kind of um, corporate social justice work, it, it, I mean, maybe that's worth just commenting on. It, it's a, it could be a double-edged sword when not done authentically or do, not done in a way that's completely um, scenario mapped. So I, I don't I don't think that, um, I think, but personally, and, and I know we're not to moralize, but obviously I think that uh, people should be able to work with whoever they'd like, provided that person's not um doing something wrong and um so to me the affiliation with the influencer and the impetus behind it clearly on some level like well-intentioned although maybe cynical in the sense if it was bandwagon bandwagoning on kind of corporate social justice kind of work um you know they were trying to get some cred in that space without really understanding that well it sounds like at least a quarter of their of their users were uh, completely oppositely minded and offended by um kind of lgbtqi rights uh, advocacy work so um that 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 juxtaposition is is really interesting but 100% this is a brand that should have been able to scenario map this and should have known that there would be this this kind of um um uproar so I, yeah, I, don't, I think if they uh, I don't think we should criticize Anheuser-Busch for trying to market to segments of the population. And I don't think we are. But the way you market to segments of the population is very different <laughs> than the way this went. Um, and we were talking earlier about influencers and, you know, very targeted marketing. It's 2023. So 
if you want to target 18-year-old males who haven't had a haircut in two years and who spend more than 35% of their time in their basement playing video games, like there is a way of finding that segment and targeting them specifically, right? Yes. Well, and, and, I, and I think that maybe they thought they were doing that because they picked someone who could narrow cast into the LGBTQI community, but to not to not notice that that person had already been in the middle of like firestorms involving conservative politicians and things and to, to not have anticipated that fallout um, is peculiar. But I'd also say I'm a bit cynical about it. Like maybe they thought the fallout would happen, but that it would be some kind of net positive somehow. That said, they clearly didn't map it very well with their corporate overlords because that that Anheuser-Busch CEO uh, communique makes it sound like maybe he didn't really even know this was going to happen. And that that seems odd because it is, uh, as you can see, a huge risk to the brand to pivot its identity. Now, I guess the other thing is what kind of identity does Bud Light have other than just being a cheap beer and having like girls in in jean shorts and guys in red baseball caps drinking it next to pickup trucks like i don't know that they have like a deeper brand identity and maybe that's important here is they 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 obviously should know their their core consumer and kind of have some guardrails up around what we can and can't do legitimately but um these are some broader conversations but really i think brand essence is at the heart of this in some way too because of that a really vitriolic backlash by a, a pretty firm chunk of their um, their usership. Yeah, totally agree. It, it is. Uh, you wonder what. Yeah, one of the tenant tenants of this podcast is what were they thinking, and you wonder what people were thinking here. And again, not. It's fine if people want to stand behind their political slash social um, uh, beliefs or understandings. But you got to think of the downstream implications of that. And like I think one of the implications here is that this has brought backlash against the LGBTQ plus community generally, uh, which can't be positive, right? And so uh, a community that is already subject to all kinds of very, very um, difficult and inappropriate actions by many people suffered further as a result of this. And I can't imagine that anybody would have wished that upon them. Therefore, I don't think this was very well thought out. Um, interestingly enough, here's an article from the CTV News uh, from three days ago saying that Anheuser-Busch's overall revenue rose 7.2% in the second quarter. <laughs> so that's uh, their, their other brands are doing fine. Um, and I don't think we don't need to worry about Anheuser-Busch uh, not having enough money in case they need to buy something. So, Mark, something we we often talk about is like, what are the, some best practices or things that can come out of our work together here on this on the crisis beat? And so, one thing that just kind of occurs to me as we're talking is, um, if brands don't have this, they should, and that's some kind of decision making tree um, for marketing initiatives. And I think that anything that might be public facing that could affect the brand should, you know, have the eyes of senior leadership on it and meet with some approvals. And and the approvals, you know, I've I've signed things off on the side of my desk, not probably watching them carefully enough at certain junctures in my career. Um, but you know, at some point in my career, I ran a large. Uh, it's a Canadian brand, but a chain um, of consumer facing um, biz, uh, consumer facing shops, essentially. And you know, I kind of would always know exactly what was going on, and probably just because of the phenotype that I am and the threat ganglia that I have. Uh, would have kind of detected these things. But 
I think some kind of formal decision-making matrix for marketing is not a bad idea, like a checklist of of questions like, could this have ramifications on social justice issues? Could this have ramifications on issues of race relations, et cetera, et cetera, before folks put out um, these ads? Because, uh, you know, we could probably do a whole episode on comically mistimed ads uh, by brands that have had damage um, in, in this way, where we're, we'd all look back and say, that's a relatively predictable outcome. Yeah, I, I think that's completely true. <clears throat> We've talked repetitively about the fact that uh, you know, we see companies immolate themselves regularly, um, and many of those immolations are due to essentially non-adaptive responses to an acute stressor. Um, and our recommendation has been to be prepared for those things before they happen, so you're not learning about them while it's rolling out in front of you. This is part of that. I will say that in um, in the faculty health sciences where I work, a couple of years ago, we hired a professional. Um, communications person and uh, Brady, you're aware of some of the background of this, and and she's done, I must say, a remarkable job at doing exactly what you just said, which is to intercept any mission critical communications and just vet them and make sure them they're consistent with our brand identity and with what plans are going in terms of promotion and and rare. I don't know if she's ever said no to something that we've proposed to do, but you know, having the knowledge that somebody who has a different skill set than we have, who's looking at the downstream impact of these things, it's actually really reassuring because it, I think it has dramatically reduced the likelihood that we're going to do something stupid. Mm-hmm. And you know, we would be very prone to do stupid things because we are not marketing professionals by any stretch of the imagination. No, and, and this this is uh, one of those cases, and your your example there too. Like this, you know, I I and I used to I used to have a very kind of disparaging view of PR and marketing in a, in a corporate environment. I used to think that these were like kind of the fluffy disciplines, and it's sort of mistakes in that realm and a lack of uh, really deep knowledge and professional competency can put a brand at such extraordinary risk. So I think that this is a, one is a good reminder. Like, do not be flippant about your marketing. Do not be glib. Do not think that it's any less serious than than finance or risk risk mitigation. Like it is really due on the uh, scrutiny and shrewdness that you apply to every dimension of your business for sure, because it can cost you the whole thing. Or in Anheuser Busch's case, twenty five percent or thirty percent of Bud Light's revenue and its position as um, the the most popular beer in a, in a large country. In the yeah, world, just economy. Totally. Totally agree. Uh, Brady, we should probably think about wrapping up. Just uh, yeah. one thing that we didn't mention today in our um, summary is that our uh, good friend Elon Musk continues to be the uh, disruptor of the galaxy with the rebranding <laughs> of the uh, social media platform, social, formerly known as Twitter, in a very mysterious move. Um, I've said repetitively, I'm not sure I've said it on this podcast, but you know, if you can land rockets after they go into space and you can design a car company, which nobody believed would be effective and now has the number one selling model car on the planet, um, you should never be underestimated. Uh, so it's been very interesting to me to read about the rebranding of Twitter and trying to figure out exactly what's going on there. But I would just make all those people who are predicting the imminent demise of the brand formerly known as Twitter to just think hard about the person who's behind this and the fact that he has a very good mind for marketing and for product development and for product articulation. 
Yeah, this is an interesting one, Mark. And I think Elon Musk is certainly uh, is certainly due a, a, an episode or two by us if we can actually wrap our heads around what's going on. Because at the same time, we've got like um, the Starlink thing going on um, as well. So some governments are, and including the US, are quite concerned that Elon Musk has effectively engineered complete dominance of the satellite. He has the most satellites um, uh, on the planet under his control. And he's at will removed access to Ukrainian forces at some points of Starlink sort of willy nilly. So he's got uh, immense control as an individual. It reminds me of Iron Man when in the first Iron Man uh, or the second one where effectively the US government is concerned at the autonomy and, and power that one person has holding the keys to that suit. And there's uh, there's some parallel here for sure. Um, and 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 then there's also you know these going uh, competition platform to Facebook Live called X X Live. They were demoing, and you know he gets he sort of gets teased a lot by the more left wing media because I, I guess he was lifting weights in in a in a video to promote their development of X Live. Um, but yeah, no, I think you're ultimately correct, Mark. There's some kind of long game here. I expect on 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 Twitter and X.com. Um, I've read articles that suggest that he'd like to do an everything app in the style that they have in in, in Asia, where it, it bundles a whole bunch of functions under one app. This is more common in China. We haven't had kind of the super app take hold here um, yet, but I, I can certainly see potential for that as well. So it is one of those things where I think Twitter, we've got to probably give it a year or two. Uh, to find out what the actual end game is, if there is one. But uh, I'm 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 more leaning on your side, Mark, that this isn't a person that uh, he's he's hit too many like globally important home runs for this to be uh, um, accidental luck at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, it's actually really interesting reading reading about the ascendancy of Tesla and the fact that the Model Y is now the single has displaced apparently, according to the news, displaced the. Toyota's Camry Corolla sort of international decades long dominance for car sales. And uh, you know, it's an electric car, for goodness sake, which is really very interesting. And you know, I was a friend and we were at a friend's house last night and they just bought a Y. And like, I don't know anybody who uh, there's always whiny money people out there. But on average, everybody who owns a Tesla seems to have joined the cult of the Tesla, which is quite cool. So uh, very interesting, very interesting. And then watching last week, the largest, I think it was launched successfully. I'm pretty sure it was the largest satellite ever launched into geosynchronous satellite and three boosters, um, two of which landed back on earth and will be used again. And the middle one was discarded, but intentionally discarded. And, you know, if you'd said 15 years ago that there would be a commercial space company that would have launched thousands of satellites to produce high-speed internet and could launch and land rockets people would have said ah that's you know that's science fiction and yet it's, it's a daily literally a daily occurrence now and it's the force behind that is our good buddy elon absolutely yeah remarkable well mark we'll end there but i think we should promise viewers a, a deeper dive in in future on that file for sure yeah and we should also do a whole episode on influencers i think uh, just so the people of my age, I didn't grow up in the nineties. I was old by then. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we should, uh, we should have a talk about uh, what influences are and, and kind of the, the ethos of the influencer and, and, you know, how, how's, how these people, have, it appears to me have been picked kind of randomly out of a rabble of people with similar qualifications and risen to this stratospheric level of success. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, we'll circle back on that one for sure. Well, it sounds like we've got our next two episodes uh, at least sketched. 
Thanks everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you next time on, on the program. Thanks everybody. Talk to you later. Thanks, Mark. Mm-hmm.